Hey, this is Tyler Johnson, pastor of Mission Church located in Walnut Creek, California. I want to say thank you for tuning in. I hope this podcast inspires you, encourages you, and helps you live the life God called you to live. Enjoy. Let's have a message. I'm about to preach. Preaching on the B-I-B-L-E, the only book for me. Liddy preaching on the Bible today, and I will not hide my intentions. Uh, my desire is that at the end of this message, there is something that happens in your soul that you so desire to devour this thing, that you would look forward to waking up and reading the Bible, not to get to know the Bible, but to get to know Jesus. We don't read the Bible to know rules. We read the Bible to get to know Jesus. Yeah. Uh, my desire is not for you to show up with a paper Bible next week and feel all hoity-toity. I actually have a picture of people who uh, sometimes feel like if they have a paper Bible, they're better than everybody. Look at this. Look at this little picture. I believe it's in there. Right there. How people who bring paper Bibles look at people who use smartphone Bible apps. Hmm. Well, well, I'm one of the faithful followers of Jesus, okay? Um, what I want to do, though, is I want you to fall in love with the Word of God. Title of my message is Don't Lose the Book. Turn to your neighbor and say, Don't Lose the Book. Don't Lose the Book. Don't Lose the Book. 2 Kings 22 says this. Hilkiah, the high priest, said to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. Catch this. Uh, the Bible, the, the, the Old Testament, the, the, the Pentateuch, has been lost for a generation. 50 plus years it had been lost. Where was it lost? The word of God had been lost in the house of God. What a sad moment for a whole generation. Nobody had heard the word of God. It had been lost. It had been, um, uh, uh, had been um, basically um, forgotten for a whole generation. He gave it to Shaphan who read it. Then Shaphan, the secretary, went to the king and reported to him, your officials have paid out the money that was in the temple of the Lord and have entrusted it to the workers and supervisors of the temple. Then Shaphan, the secretary, informed the king, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book. He's given me a book. And Shaphan read it in the presence of the king. I can't believe he just calls it a book. It had been lost so long, it wasn't the book anymore. It was just a book. Is this just a book to you or is this the book to you? Now, now let me tell you something real quick. Uh, sin will keep you from this thing or this will keep you from sin. This will, get, this will, this will be the, the thing that promises you an abundant life. You get to know it, it will shape you, it will redeem you. The Bible says in Psalm 119 that this is a lamp for your feet and a light for your path. That if you read it, that literally you are not gonna be walking in darkness, but walking in light. It says in Psalm 119, I've hidden your word in my heart, O God, that I may not sin against you. The Bible showed, the, the studies show that if you actually read your word four times more a week, you'll actually li li uh, live a less sinful life. AKA, you'll have less bondage in your life. Uh, I love what um, uh, Lynn K. Wilder, a former professor, said this. I read my Bible sometimes hours a day and truly felt like I was being washed. In its pages, I met Jesus who was able to save me from my life of working to be good. The cross uh, meant that none of the other stuff mattered. I was saved only by God's limitless love. That's a quote from Lynn Wilder, a former BYU professor who converted to Christianity. The more and more you read the Bible, the more and more you love reading the Bible. I'm telling you, if you're not reading the Bible right now, you just don't know how good it is. When you start to read the Bible and you actually start to see the words of God, you, you find yourself at the end of it being stirred up and your life literally being transformed. Something I caught this week I thought was fascinating was uh, the same God who wrote the Ten Commandments uh, with his finger on tablets. You know, you shall know God's before me. You shall know idols. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not kill. Those Ten Commandments. You fast forward to the New Testament. You'll see this woman who is caught in adultery. And the Pharisees bring her to Jesus and say, hey, she's caught in adultery. Let's stone her to death. Now, what Jesus has shown throughout his teachings is that nobody can hold to the law. Everybody falls drastically short. And so Jesus, at this moment, takes the same finger that wrote on the tablets of the Ten Commandments. The same God that wrote the Ten Commandments writes with the same finger in the sand a line. And he simply says, go and sin no more. He writes a new beginning for this woman's life. And the more and more you read the Bible, you realize there is a God of new beginnings. Yes. There's a God that can take your past and delete it, basically, and say, I'll, I'll forget it as far as the east is from the west, and I can reboot your life, and you can have the life you've always dreamt to have. Amen. That's what happens when you start to read the Bible. I don't know what Bible you've been reading, but that's what my Bible says. It goes on to say, when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his robes. He gave these orders to Hilkiah, the priest of Achaeum. So he goes on to give these orders after he, he hears the word. So can you imagine for the first time he's hearing the word of God read? And if I was reading you Psalm 23 today, as I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for the shepherd is with me, for my king is with me. 
I was thinking about reading just scripture after scripture and just having you act like you heard it for the first time. And in Matthew 9, there's this moment where a man who, uh, his daughter has died, he comes up to Jesus and he simply says, my daughter has died, but if you touch her, I know she will come back to life. You read scriptures like that, you'll start to be reminded, Lord, I know the Bay Area looks like it's dead, but you can bring it back to life. Josiah hears the word of the Lord and he basically does four things. He reforms, he renews, he removes, and he rebuilds. Reforms is simply this. He goes back to the way that God has called you to live. That's all reformation is, going back to actually what God intended. And then after that, he, he renews. He actually brings the Passover back. And what renews would look like back then would be like a, almost a wedding ceremony of like a, ring, a, a, a wedding renewal ceremony. Say you've had a bad stretch in your marriage, you know, five, 10 years, and you're like, man, we have been off. We were way off. We drifted apart. But we want to redeclare the promises we made back then. And we want to have a, wing, a wedding renewal ceremony and declare that I love you. You love me. Let's actually do this the way God called us to do it. And so they have basically a wedding renewal ceremony, and it's the last good run of the people of God before they go in captivity. It's the last mini revival, if you will, about 30 years of the people of God being blessed and protected because there is a leader willing to actually say, this is the way we're supposed to live. Then he removes, he starts tearing down idols, starts tearing down the things that was destroying uh, mankind. But it's not enough just to tear down, we got to build something up. So he tears down the, the, the things that are stealing, but then he builds up the things that would give life to God's people. And I'm here to tell you real quick that if you could... Give this thing a chance and read the word because the Bible shows, I mean, studies show, excuse me, that we are the most biblically illiterate generation ever to live in America. We have walked away from the book. But I'm believing that there is a church that is being raised up in the Bay Area that is going to walk back to the book. Amen? Will you bow your heads? I'm going to pray. God, we give you all the glory. We give you all the glory. We thank you that Caroline and Michael got engaged. Um, it's the theme of our day today. Um, Lord, we love you so much. God, I pray right now that you would... Um, that you would breathe on service. If we don't have your breath, if we don't have your anointing, your oil, Lord, this is nothing. It's just a gathering. But God, when you meet us here, it becomes a life-giving moment. So God, I pray that my words will fall to the floor and your words will soar. God, we need you. We need you. We need you. And everybody said? Amen. When I was preparing this message, it made me uh, uh, remember a joke I heard one time about two guys who grew up in church. These two guys grew up in church, and both of them didn't know they grew up in church, and so they were talking one time, they were out to coffee, and they're both in their mid-20s, and they're like, hey, man, I don't know if you do this, but I grew up in church. I went to church my whole life, basically, uh, growing up until I was about 18. The guy's like, no way did you go to church. There's no way that you're a Christian and went to church. And his other guy goes, why do you say that? Because I went to church, and I grew up, and I went to church until I was like 18. And the other guy's like, there's no way you went to church. And the other guy's like, there's no way you went to church. And so he's like, I'll prove it to you. I, uh, he goes, I, I, I know the Lord's Prayer. And the guy goes, you don't know the Lord's Prayer. He goes, I bet you $10 that you cannot recite the Lord's Prayer to me right now. And the guy goes, game on. I'll take that bet. And so he goes on to recite this prayer to him. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. And his friend looks at him and he goes, dang it. I didn't know you knew the prayer. Here's 10 bucks. <laughs> now, if you're new to church, the Lord's prayer is our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Um, you get it. Yeah. yeah. So um, if you didn't know, okay. Um, reason why that joke caught me for this thing is we have a lot of Christians who act like they know Jesus, and then they'll be talking to each other about what they think Jesus thinks, and then they're agreeing with each other, but they know nothing about Jesus. I, I wrote this quote down. I want to actually read it to you. Um, we have a bunch of Christians sharing views of Jesus, but don't know the real Jesus. You can't know the real Jesus if you don't know the Word of God. And you're saying, Tyler, is it really that bad right now? Well, the, uh, the, the studies show from the Bible Institute of America that two-thirds of America says they're Christians, but only 6% say the Bible's their ultimate authority, that they believe the whole thing is right. So two-thirds say they're Christians, but then only 6% say, no, this is actually what is my guide, my boundaries. If it says it, I do it. Anybody love the movie Pirates of the Caribbean? Any Pirates of the Caribbean? It's one of my favorites, you know? You're the worst pirate I've ever heard of. Ah, oh, but you have heard of me. You know, it's just, it's a fantastic movie. Um, and, and, um, uh, and so in the, in the movie, there's this, there's this joke that uh, goes throughout the whole movie, and it's about the pirate code. And you know the pirate code, you go like, parlay, parlay. And it means that you, can't, you have to go, you know, go before somebody and say they can kill you. And so throughout, though, they're breaking the pirate code all the time. And the people who don't know about the pirate code say to the pirates, I thought that was pirate code. They're like, well, it's more guidelines and suggestions than actually a code and a way to live. It's just guidelines and suggestions. And when I think about that line throughout the Pirates of the Caribbean, what the studies are saying is Christians say, oh, I thought this was ultimate authority. No, it's more like just suggestions. 
It's more like just like a little guideline we follow now. A bunch of Christians have become pirates from Pirates of the Caribbean on how they follow Jesus. And I'm here to tell you, if you do not follow this thing, the word says in Matthew 5 that not a jot or tittle, not a, not a, not a comma will be removed, eternal. This thing is powerful, alive and active. It also shows us in studies that 50% of church-going Christians, people go to church, don't read the Bible at all. And if they do, it's like once a year. So if you're like, oh my gosh, I hope nobody knows I don't read the Bible. Yeah, basically we know half of you don't read the Bible, okay? <laughs> Throw a rock, you're going to hit somebody who doesn't read the Bible, okay? Like, oh, yep, yep, you, you know, like, look to your left, maybe they do. Look to your right, they probably don't, okay? Yeah, yes, and then a no, 50, 50, okay? Yeah, uh, we, got, uh, we got 100% in the front row. So, kind of prideful statement a little bit. Uh, those, mm-hmm. We got, another, we got another row that's like, oh, we'll take up for the other 50%. This whole row doesn't read. Um, we are in such a biblically illiterate generation that if you asked a Christian that goes to church, name more than three disciples, they won't be able to name more than three disciples. You ask those same people to name the starting five of the Warriors. I just went to the Warriors game. They lost, but it was fun. Um, they get new players every year. But people who go to Warriors game, they know all the Warriors. There's 12 Warriors every year. They know a ton of the Warriors. They're the same 12 disciples for the last 2,000 years. You probably know who the disciples are. They're not changing in and out the rotation. You know, the same starting five is the same starting five. They had one guy who blew it. His name's Judas. We booted him off the team. Uh, then they signed a new free agent in the book of Acts. It's a whole, it's a whole thing. Um, they rolled some dice. Um, it, it's hard for a normal church-going Christian to name the first five books of the Bible. To name the Gospels is not a gimme anymore. All four Gospels. The reality is, is that stats have showed us that we have lost the book. Our generation has lost the book. We have lost the word of God in the house of God. You have lost the word of God maybe in your own home. And it happened back then in Josiah's day, and so he had to have reform. Can I tell you something real quick? Reform is going back to the word of God. Revival is going back to the power of God. You cannot have one without the other. You have to have both. And so when I'm talking about our church having revival, we need to have revival and reformation. We need to go back to the word and go back to the power. We're not gonna change the Bay Area with a good idea or with a slick talk and a cool song. It's gonna be the power of God and the truth of God. So I was looking throughout history and saying, was there any other time that you know, the, the book was lost, the, the Bible was lost? And uh, there was another time, it was called the Dark Ages. And the Dark Ages are called the Dark Ages because mankind didn't really progress at all and the culture actually declined during those times. And one of the greatest marks of the Dark Ages was that the, the Bible was taken out of people's hands that people didn't have the Bible. The Bible was lost once again. And there was a man named Martin Luther. He was born in 1483, uh, died in 1546. Uh, And the way that he was converted uh, was he was on a walk one day and he was almost struck by lightning. And he took it as a sign that God was displeased with him. So he became a monk. And if you were a monk back then, you are saying yes to poverty and celibacy. Those are the two greatest uh, marks of a monk. So he became a Christian monk and committed to celibacy and poverty. And he was a tormented man for his first uh, walk uh, in in what you would call this religion. He would go to the confessional box all the time because he always felt like a sinful person. He he felt so sinful because he'd read the Bible and he knew he couldn't keep the standards of what God was showing. And so not only would he go to the confession box, but he actually would physically hurt himself to try to pay God back for the sins he was committing. And so this, this... this monk in the Catholic church uh, stumbled upon uh, Habakkuk uh, in the book of Habakkuk that the righteous are saved by faith. And then uh, theologians go on to say that uh, Martin Luther says that his favorite epistle was the book of Galatians. It was the Magna Carta of Liberty. He started reading the book of Galatians and he saw throughout the whole Bible that, 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 that salvation was a gift from God and could only be received by faith. But he was in a movement that was the gospel of performance and the gospel of payment. And so uh, the Catholic church at that time would sell indulgences. You could actually uh, pay for your sin with money or bring relics and your sins would be forgiven. And they got so um, uh, creative in this idea that you could say, I'm going to sin tomorrow. I'm going to go pay for it today to sin tomorrow. And so, so, so Martin Luther's reading this and he's so grossed out that none of this is in the Bible that he risks his life. A man who was afraid to die uh, is willing to now die for Jesus. And he goes and he, he risks his life uh, in Wittenberg, uh, Germany, takes this 95-point thesis and nails it to the door. Now, it's not any door. It's a door actually where if you wanted somebody to read something, it was like almost like a bulletin board, if you will. It would have been like a Facebook wall back in the day. It's the thing that people would see and frequent a lot, and they would check. So he is literally risking his life, puts a 95-point thesis on the thing, and his 95-point thesis goes viral. 
uh, Martin Luther becomes a celebrity pastor, basically. And so you may not like the term celebrity pastor, but he became a celebrity pastor. He was known throughout the land and his 95 point thesis went viral. So much so that he um, uh, realized that the Catholic Church is all saying the, the holiest life is a celibate life and a, and, a, and a poor life. But he read the Bible and he says, the Bible doesn't show that. Getting married is, is a good thing. God, God says it's a good thing, it's a gift. Having money is not a bad thing. Loving money is a bad thing and having to be the spirit of manna, but having money is not a bad thing. So he writes a monastic uh, pamphlet to actually denounce your monastic views that are saying basically you vowed to, to something that was never in the Bible. So this little pamphlet starts making its way throughout Germany. 12 nuns read the, the pamphlet and they literally write to Martin Luther, hey, we want to get married. We had no idea that it would actually please God and it's actually an okay thing. Uh, can you break us out of our convent? So Martin Luther devises a plan. They literally hide in wine barrels and he, uh, he uh, has all 12 escape and they all get married except one of them uh, can't find a husband. Her name's Catherine. She was engaged to somebody that Martin Luther set her up with, but the guy says, I cannot marry her. She is unattractive and she is unpleasant. She's very, very mean. <laughs> so she told Martin Luther, you're the one who broke me out of here. You have to marry me. So Martin Luther at age 40 marries Catherine. He is the original 40-year-old virgin. Yes, I said it, okay? Um, <laughs> He's 40 years old. He wasn't planning on getting married, but he uh, ends up getting married to Catherine. And uh, throughout their marriage, uh, you'll see that he writes that she was stubborn and prideful in the very beginning. Uh, but then he falls in love with Catherine. They end up having six kids, three boys and three girls. Through his writings, you'll see his, his, his verbiage change of my dear Catherine, my beautiful Catherine. Oh, I love Catherine. He, he credits Catherine for saving his life at times, that, 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 that he was a, uh, a melancholic person. He'd be depressed at times. And one time he was so depressed, he came home and he opened the door and she was wearing all black. And he asked her, uh, why are you wearing all black? She goes, well, my husband died a few weeks ago. And uh, so I'm having his funeral because he's not talking and he's really depressed. And it made him laugh and come out of his depression. This is his dear Catherine. So Mar, Mar oh, oh. If your spouse is really sad, just wear all black. They'll think it's hilarious. Um, now, I share all that to say is that the story of Martin Luther is a beautiful, powerful story of a man risking his life to get the Bible back in people's hands. Now, you need to hear something. Martin Luther was not some keyboard warrior after service critiquing every little thing. Right. He wasn't like, you know what, um, the secondary issue of, I don't really like how they sang that song this week. That was not what he was doing. He fought two big things. He said that the, the Catholic Church had made the gospel a gospel of payment and a gospel of performance. And the Bible, and Jesus only intended to be the gospel of repentance. That, that we should be reminded of the gospel every day and repent every day because we're so quick to forget the gospel and try to live for ourselves and live for religion. So he said, I'm going to battle the gospel of performance and payment. And I will let people know that there is a gospel of repentance that is a free gift, a free gift paid by Jesus. No man and no pope can give you that gift. Jesus is the only one that gives that gift. So, so he starts to tear down some things like Josiah did, tear down the idols of the Catholic church at the time and build up the gospel once again. Not only that, his second thing he was trying to do was just get the Bible in people's hands. This was the time of the, the Gutenberg press. Like, this is when things could go viral again. So he's trying to get the thing printed and get it in people's hands. And so now we are in a new era. We are not in the dark ages. We are in what they call a monistic age. Uh, uh, the, 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 it's the age of monism, if you will. It means that there is no longer a dualistic view on life. You're not allowed to have a dualistic view. Let me read you the age they say we're in because the, the, the book has been lost. The Catholic Church does not own our culture now and shape our culture like it did in the 1500s. There's a different thing that owns our culture and it's simply the monistic view of culture. Let me read it to you, you'll see it. I wanna, I wanna, I wanna uncover the rock today of what culture is trying to do to you and do to our society. Mainstream culture is monistic. Monism does not allow black and white thinking. It refuses to allow any categories because that would require making distinctions, which ultimately ends in making value judgments. Instead of Satan and God, we have a higher power. Instead of demons and angels, we have spirits or ghosts. Instead of sin and holiness, we have lifestyle choices. Instead of lies and truth, we have uh, your truth and my truth. Instead of darkness and light, we just have shades of gray. Instead of wolves and shepherds, we have spiritual guides. Instead of non-Christians and Christians, we have everyone as God's child or a child of a higher power. Instead of hell and heaven, we have all people going to a better place when they die. Monism is a religion. Do not fool yourself. Although not always formal like Christianity, it is a religious worldview. I mean, it is a passionate uh, uh, religion. I mean, there is... Uh, you name it, uh, riots for it. There are uh, people who will cancel you for it. They will, there are businesses that will sacrifice their business for these beliefs. I mean, there, there are some 
monistic religious people that are willing to risk more for monism than Christians are willing to risk for Jesus. And so because we have these views, the book has been lost because the book has been hidden away because if you actually get this book out, it's gonna say there is only one way, one truth, and one life. There is only one savior, not two saviors. They're gonna say there's light and darkness, there's demons, there's things. You read the Bible, you're gonna find a lot of truth in this thing. And my prayer today is that we're gonna look at the word and I wanna go to Psalm 19. I was thinking about going to Psalm 119. It's the longest uh, chapter in all the Bible. Uh, It's uh, about the word of God. It's a beautiful, beautiful chapter. But uh, theologians say Psalm 19 is the little brother of Psalm 119. And so, that, so, we could try, uh, so we could cover all the, the scripture today. I went to Psalm 19. And there's three things you'll see about the word of God that if we um, will allow it, it will show us some great things. When you lose the book, you lose his glory. We'll see that in Psalm 19. When you lose the book, you lose out on his goodness. We'll see that in Psalm 19. When you lose the book, you lose out on his grace. But when you find this thing, when you find Jesus, you find his glory, you find his goodness, and you find his grace. Are you ready for this part of the message? All right, here we go. Psalm 19, let me read it to you. The heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day, they continue to speak. Night after night, they make him known. They speak without a sound or word. Their voice is never heard. Yet their message has gone throughout the earth and their words to all the world. God has made home in all the heavens for the sun. It bursts forth like a radiant bridegroom after his wedding. It rejoices like a great athlete eager to run the race. I just love what this is saying. They speak without a sound of word. Their voice is never heard, yet their message has gone throughout the earth. This, this, this text is saying that, that God's creation, Romans 1, uh, 119 says, um, for man is without excuse for the creation around him. He's saying that when you look at creation, the sun rises at one end of the heavens and follows its course on the other end. Nothing can hide from its heat. The book reminds us of his glory. Uh, the glorious design of this earth shows us a glorious designer. Um, what creation does, and if you allow it to do it, it makes you come to a decision. Is there a God or is there not a God? That's what Psalm 19 is saying. It's saying it's, got, it's gonna start the conversation. Is God glorious or is he not glorious? Did nothing come from something or did nothing come from nothing? R.C. Sproul said it this way, to think that nothing, that something came from nothing is pure chaos. Now, let me read you some things about just the glorious design from our glorious designer. Uh, so if our uh, planet, Earth, was uh, as close as Venus, we would burn up like that. If we were far away as Mars, we'd freeze. Uh, it's just how it happens. We're the right exact distance to have life here on Earth. Uh, we uh, are 365 days around, um, uh, around the sun a year. If it was uh, less than that, let's say, let's say 30 times. Our days would be 10, day, uh, 10 times longer, and there could be no vegetation. It would not be inhabitable. It is the perfect amount of days around the sun. Another thing uh, I found out was we are 23rd and a third degrees. Uh, our, our planet is on an axis of 23rd and a third degrees. Sorry, sorry I was going to sneeze. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm a, when I start season two, it's like comes in five. So we're thankful that didn't happen. Uh, 23rd and a third degrees. It gives us four seasons, four seasons. Another thing I, I found out in the studies is uh, just so happens that our atmosphere is um, 80% oxygen, 20% nitrogen. It was 50-50. If you lit a match, it would set the whole thing on fire. Another thing I found out that 24 hours is just the right amount for us to live here on this earth. Do you know that Jupiter is a cosmic vacuum put in the universe? That all the junk that is in the universe, that if Jupiter didn't exist, that we would have junk falling into earth all the time. It would be in, uh, being exploded like Armageddon all the time. But Jupiter is the universe's uh, vacuum. It's there to protect us. Over and over again, you'll see throughout our oceans, if they were lower, uh, we, if we were just a little bit lower, we'd get a fourth of the rain that we get now. If they were just an eighth larger, we'd get four times the rain and the whole earth would be a swamp. All of this, all of this is nature pointing to a creator. I have no idea if you're a seeker today. I have no idea if you're a new believer today. But the reality is is that you have to decide where your faith is going to lie because there is a a life and a death. And there is, the, the Bible says in Ecclesiastes that he's taken eternity and placed it in our hearts. There's a reason why we feel like Death doesn't seem natural because it entered when sin entered the world, that, that God did not intend death, but Adam and Eve literally uh, rebelled and caused sin to come to this earth, and so therefore death came to this earth. I've never met an atheist with, uh, that's just an atheist just because. The only reason I met atheists is because they had a bad church experience. And so they decide to put their stock in there's no God because they met a bad Christian one day. Do not put your stock in there's no Jesus because you met a bad Christian. Creation says there is a great creator. But if you want to believe and have faith that two rocks hit really hard together and made this perfect thing that is rotating, having you and I breathe as it goes millions of miles around, then believe it, but put your stake on and say, this is my faith. But don't be indecisive about your eternity. Don't be like, I don't don't want to think about it because I think it's one of Satan's greatest tricks. 
is to have you never think about eternity, never have you think about death. A lot of our society whistles past the graveyard. When the graveyard is there, they whistle past it, they don't want to think about it, they don't want to process it. But all of us one day will have our last breath. And there is a beautiful love letter from our Savior, and it's called creation. It makes me think of a story uh, uh, from a, a father who was in Spain that got in a, a disagreement with his son named Paco. Paco had stolen from the family and the father confronted him. And the father, went to, when he went to go confront Paco, Paco was so defensive, they got in a big fight and Paco left the house. The father thought Paco would eventually return, but Paco never returned. And the father was so grieved by this that he took an ad out in the local newspaper in Spain. And the newspaper article, it was on the front page, it simply said this, Paco, it's me, your father. I love you. I forgive you. Come home. The door's wide open. I love you, Paco. So he puts it there, and at the very end of it, he goes, Paco, I will be here tomorrow at 3 p.m. on the street corner right in front of the newspaper. Meet me here at 3 p.m. tomorrow. I love you. And so the newspaper article goes out. The father shows up the following day, and on that street corner, he waits and looks for Paco. When he shows up, there are 800 Pacos looking to, re, to reunite and be, uh, uh, be re, re, um, uh, to be, uh, what's the word? Uh, restored, restored to their father, restored to the father. Gosh, restored was a hard word for me this morning. That's, buckle up, everybody. Um, 800 Pacos waiting to be restored to their father. All of us have this desire to have restoration with the relationships that mean most to us. And the greatest relationship in our life is our relationship with our creator, our savior. And the letter of creation is God saying, come home, ask the questions. It is not just something so we can just look at and enjoy. It is actually a love letter from our Savior saying, I am real, I am your Savior, here's my glory, I can redeem anything. If I can make, if I can make the, the Grand Canyon, if I can make Mount Everest, trust me, I can make something great out of you. I wanna encourage you today that creation points to a creator. But if you miss out on the word, you have no idea that it's his glory. Second thing we see is that when you lose out on his book, you lose out on his goodness. The instructions of the Lord are perfect, reviving the soul. You'll see in this next part of Psalm 19, there'll be six parts of this poem, this beautiful poetry that the Holy Spirit uses David write from pen to paper. And there'll be six statements and then six promises with that statement. So the first statement we see is the instructions of the Lord are perfect. What, is it, what, is it, what do they do? They revive the soul. Now, reviving the soul, uh, if you, you could actually see the Hebrew, it says it actually refreshes and uh, revives your psyche. What it means is that you've lost your original self of who you are. And when you read the word of God, that the real self you're supposed to be gets awakened and you start becoming the real you instead of the you that the world has tried to shape and the wounds have created. Yeah, A lot of us, let's be honest, they, they show studies. We're, we're the sum average of the five people we're closest to in our life. And if you have five people that hurt you over and over again, you start to become a version of yourself that God never intended. But if you have five believers who are championing you and calling you to live for God and encourage you to read your word, you can actually maybe become the real self you're supposed to be. And so C.S. Lewis uh, shows the best picture of you, asked me, in the Chronicles of Narnia. It's a story about a prince who's under an evil spell. And he's under this evil spell and he gets tied up to this chair at night and the chair is what is actually holding him bondage under this evil spell. So the prince has no idea who he is or his birthright or his royalty. One night he gets the, uh, his sword and he destroys the chair and therefore destroys the spell and gets his mind back and becomes the prince and gets his inheritance back. And what C.S. Lewis is trying to show from Psalm 19 is why he wrote it, is to show you that when you have the sword of the spirit, this thing, this Bible is called literally a sword, the Mahira is what it's called in the Hebrew, that literally is sharper than any double-edged sword and that if you use it, it will destroy the things that are destroying your mind. That if you use it, that it, you can actually get your real self back again. And so I wanna encourage you, if you are not reading your Bible, you are not allowing things to be destroyed in your mind that need to be destroyed. If you're not reading your Bible, there are things that only the word of God can set you free from and not your own strength. I, uh, I, I shared this last night, so I'll share it today. Um, I'll overshare. Can I overshare it today? Oh, let's do it. Let's do it. So my buddy, uh, my best friend, Drew, uh, I got to uh, visit him uh, uh, last week, spoke at his church. We had a great time. And one of our uh, friends actually moved to Florida also by Drew, and he was on our high school basketball team. His dad videoed all of our high school basketball games. And so he uh, came over uh, on the Super Bowl Sunday when I was there. And he's like, my dad dropped off all the DVDs of our high school basketball games. And uh, there's one game that I really like. I scored a good amount of points in it. And I hit the game winning shot. And the whole place, they, you know, rushed the court and picked me up. It's one of my, one of my favorite, uh, you know, high school memories. Um, uh, I could throw that football over the mountain, by the way. Let's keep talking. Um, I sound like that guy right now. Um, so, so my buddy Drew, I didn't get to watch him because he, I, I didn't get him in time. I was flying out the next day. He uh, is watching the games uh, throughout the week and shooting me video clips of like us playing basketball together. You know, one of them, we Kobe and Shaq, like I made the shot. He picked me up. It was like, or I picked him up. I can't remember. He's like, bro, I can't believe we Kobe and Shaq that. Um, so, so 
all my high school emotions start bubbling up a little bit this last week. And one of the things that Drew said to me is like, man, like you should have shot more. Like, like you should have had like, more confidence in high school. And I wrote back, I said, yeah, man, I always just had a fear of failure. Um, I'd only shoot like if I knew like I, I had the, the best opportunity. I was never forced anything. And, and I told Rachel this week, I was like, man, like I was reminded of how much I lacked confidence and self-worth in high school. If you knew me in high school, you would have never known that because I put on a, a fake self. But, but throughout my high school years and even until I was about 25, I struggled so much with the way that I saw myself. So much so that uh, I got obsessed with working out. I got down to about 7% body fat and I looked in the mirror and I still thought I was fat. I had body dysmorphia because you grow up in a household where your dad tells you you're fat all the time and your dad speaks death over you. It's gonna mess you up. It's gonna make you not have your real self anymore. So much so that even my younger sister that she suffered from bulimia and almost, almost died from it. And so when you, when, you, when you grow up in a broken world, it breaks you. And as I started to read the word as a young believer and a young pastor, I got my confidence. Not from the world. And I'd like to tell you that I, I don't struggle with anything anymore. I don't struggle with self-worth sometimes. But the reality is the more and more you read the word, the more and more you get yourself back. I want to read you something uh, that um, uh, Becky P- uh, Pippert, a uh, great author, said. Whatever controls you is your God. The one, the one who seeks power is controlled by power. The one who seeks acceptance is controlled by people. Whatever you are seeking or whatever you're trying to get, it is your God. But there's only one that you seek gives you true liberty. And his name is Jesus. He'll give you liberty from your past, liberty from your wounds. I want to encourage you. If you start hanging out with the Lord, the things that have hurt you and shaped you will be literally knocked off your life and you'll become the real you. Amen. So the, 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 the instructions of the Lord are perfect, reviving the soul. Next one, the decrees of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. Making wise the simple. You know what that uh, word simple means in the Greek? Uh, makes, making wise the dumb. What it's saying is you dumb. I'm dumb. We dumb. Nobody likes hearing that. You're like, I am not, you know, you know how many degrees I have? I am not dumb. Can I tell you, you may, you, you, may, you, you may be dumb, but you definitely are arrogant if this is how you're responding right now, okay? I'm gonna say, the Bible says you are a sheep. This is what the Lord says, you're a sheep. And the reason why I use a sheep is because it's the dumbest animal, okay? So, 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 so even though you think you're really smart, I think I'm really smart, Lord says, without him, we is really, really simple. I love the New Living Translation. It's the nicest translation to give you. Like, like to say, oh, you're just simple. It's way nice to say, you just dumb. And, 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 and let, let me double down on this real quick. Throughout history, every generation looks down at the generation before as a generation that wasn't as smart as them. 50 years ago, like, I can't believe they thought that way and processed that way. 50 years before that, they said the same thing. But then the generation comes and it's our generation now. We think we're the smartest. We finally figured it out. Uh, we'll take it from here with all our smarts and we'll fix everything. Let me show you how much uh, society has missed it and cultures missed it throughout time. Here's one of the things that they used to take in America. This is from a magazine ad. Cocaine toothache drops, 15 cents. They were giving cocaine to kids for the toothaches. Crack rock. I can't eat it all, Joe Rock. I mean, come on. Let me show you another magazine ad. This is from Bayer. Bayer, who's still around, they were putting heroin in their Tylenol. They said, and literally, so the first year it's out, they're like, hey, these bottles are flying off the shelf. It might be addictive. And Bear's like, no, it's fine. It's helping the kids. It's helping coughs. Let's keep the heroin in there. For 18 years, people were taking heroin because the greatest minds thought it was good for you to take. But thank goodness we live in 2024 where the greatest minds have figured everything out. To where we can put our trust in the greatest minds of this world to fix me and save me and heal me. Or maybe, just maybe, 50 years from now, our, the, the next generation will look at our generation and say, you approved what? You were celebrating what? You were championing what? You thought this was it? Because the reality is, is that we are all simple when we're born into this world. We all have dumb ideas. But pride and arrogance makes us think we have the most genius idea. And he says, my words, my instructions will make the simple wise. And I'm here to tell you, If you want to know how to navigate life at a very high level, start to get to know this book. Go to Proverbs. It's the book on wisdom, 31 uh, chapters. The wisest man ever to live, the Bible says, wrote a book on wisdom. Read it. Teach you how to deal with difficult people. Teach you how to steward your finances. Teach you how to find a wife even. It says you got to search for it. Show you the type of wife to look out for. It says an annoying woman is like a constant drip. And to marry her, it's going to ruin your life. Watch out for her. I mean, that's literally what Proverbs says. Come on now. I'm just being honest. To the Bible. I'm preaching Bible to you right now. 
Um, so if you may, don't let, okay, anyways, okay. Um, okay, um, let me write this. The eternal Bible, it's never wrong. Culture is eternally wrong. Every wave of culture, just wrong, wrong. So many ideas. But if you allow this to make you wise, watch what happens to your life, your marriage, your relationships, and your business, and your dreams. Next one, next promise. The commandments of the Lord are right, bringing joy to the heart. Bringing joy to the heart. What this is saying is God wants to give you answers to the test. Uh, anybody ever cheat on a test in high school? You look at somebody else's paper because you knew they had the right answers? Anybody? You're in church, you're for, hey, forgiven. Okay, forgiven. You're in your confessional box right now. You are forgiven, all right? Even though you don't need my forgiveness, you get it, all right. Um, I, I did it once before I was in ministry. It wasn't in Bible college. It was in high school. Sat next to a gal, her name was Shannon, and she was the smartest girl in class. And uh, she had a crush on me, so she would actually tilt her paper this way for me to read. I've never, I've never enjoyed a paper... Somebody liked that. I've never enjoyed a test more. I used to be stressed out about tests because I, I, was, I was in high school to enjoy life. I was a social butterfly. I didn't care. I just wanted to get a passing grade and move on. I didn't find my worth in, in getting A's. I found my worth in basketball and in dating a girl. That was where I found my worth at the time. Uh, I, was, I was codependent. Those are my, my weaknesses. Grades, I didn't care. Nobody saw me besides my mom and dad. And me and Drew, anyways, we took him to Adobe Photoshop and changed their grades anyways. But that's a different story. Before I found the Lord... I was a lost man, okay? But I'll never forget when Shannon literally tilted her paper this way and I knew she had all the answers right. I literally like looked. It was the most enjoyable test I ever had in my life. I was like, ta-da, la-ta-ta, la Turned it in with peace and confidence, knew I was gonna get an A the next day and moved on. And what the Lord is trying to say in this one is saying, I gave you the cheat sheet. You got the answers to the test. Every single decision in your life you don't have to stress out. Am I making the right decision, wrong decision? Is, am I going to fail with this? Am I not going to fail with this? But when you don't have this, because the commands of the Lord bring joy, the commands of the world bring stress and anxiety would be the opposite. Let me show you a study that proves it. LinkedIn did this recent study because people are having what they call decision paralysis. They're so afraid of making the wrong decision because they regret a previous decision of their life of taking the wrong job. Here's what their stats show. Surveying 14,000 employees in businesses, and leaders across 17 countries. They found that uh, in 2023, they came across the decision dilemma. 83% of us, oh, excuse me, 86% of them say that they struggle with decision distress, aka a lot of anxiety and stress of regret. So, so 85% have decision distress when they make decisions because they don't want to regret and mess up and make the wrong decision. 72% said they actually have decision paralysis. They can't even make a decision because they don't want to mess up. Because they have no idea where to find the answers to the test of life. Let me, let, me, let me read you a story in Luke real quick. Martha is in the room with Jesus and so is Mary. And Martha is frustrated and annoyed that Mary is having a joyful, enjoyable time and Martha is stressed out. Have you met or ever met somebody who's so happy they made you angry? So positive they made you not positive? They had so much joy, you're like, somebody slapped this person. I'm not writing that person ever again. Like, like Mary was the person who was so joyful, it would make Martha not joyful. Because Martha didn't understand the answer to the test like Mary did. And so Jesus responds to Martha this way. Martha, Martha, which is the kindest way he loves Martha. Another translation say, my dear Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, about many things. Now those Greek words, worry, Lydia says, you're being torn to shreds on the inside. That's what, that's what, he's like, I can see it, Martha. You're being torn to shreds right now. You're so anxious. You're, you're being destroyed in life. And he goes, and you're worried and upset about many things. Those Greek words says, your to-do list and your goal list, it's too big. I never gave you these goals or this success list. Where did you get this list of to-do? I, I didn't give it to you. You have all these things that you think you need to do well at, all these things that you need to get done. I never gave him any, any of them to you. That's what he's saying in the, that little text right there. And he goes on to say, in, in, in verse 42, the next chapter, but few things are needed. Everybody say few. Come on, if you actually started to realize the few things you need in your life to have a full life, you would enjoy your life way more. But few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. I'm about to give you some of the best pastoral advice I've ever given in my life. I don't know why I held back on you. I don't know why I've kept this to myself for so long. But my life has been a life of decisions for the last 20 years following the Lord. And I'm going to submit something to you. I've been crushing it. 
I, I, I have been. Crushing it. I look at my last 20 years. You know how many regrets I have? Oh, Tyler, zero, zero regrets. I'm not getting braggy. I'm just want to brag about my Jesus real quick, okay? So, so, so bear with me. A lot of you are like, like I don't, I'm, the, I'm the positive guy that's making you unpositive. I'm the happy guy making you angry right now. I get it. I get it. It's cool. Uh, bear with me. I've had this way that I make decisions in my life that has always given me peace to where when I put all chips in, I can sleep like a baby the next day. That when I decide to literally move from one state to another and then one city from LA to the Bay to plant a church with no money and no people and know it's the right decision to marry somebody and say, I know this is the person I want to rock with for the next 67 years of my life and to know that I made the right decision over and over again. How can you have peace like that? Let me show you the three things that the word showed me and how I live my life. First thing that I always do is the first thing when I make a decision is I go to God, I want to obey this thing over everything. If it says it, I'm doing it. Because I know that if I do this and I obey it, that he will honor it and bring a reward to it. Do you know that God is actually like, there's a reward to actually following God. It's like, like, he's like I'll reward it. Like, like if you obey it, I'll reward it. So, so when I started following the Lord and realizing that, that if I live a holy life, cause we, we have enough gifted people in society, we need more godly people in society, but that's a whole nother story. Um, I realize that if you live a godly life, that God will use you in, in amazing ways. Uh, and I'm not saying perfect. I am far from perfect. But my, but, but my posture is I want to have a right relationship with the Lord. When I started realizing how God wanted me to steward my time and my finances, and there were promises to him, I listened and obeyed to it, and I have no regrets in it. I've never let finances direct one of my decisions in my life. Rachel and I have taken huge financial uh, uh, hits in our life for the Lord, and he's always paid us back tenfold. Because finances are never the decisions. Always can I honor God in my decision. If you would put God first in your decisions, I'm telling you, your life would look completely different and your blessings would look completely different. If God, God, do you want me to do this? God, what does your scripture say about this? And we can get, we can get, let's get a little over spiritual and then let's get really practical with this one real quick, ready? Over spiritual. I feel like God told me to plant a church in Walnut Creek. I did not want to plant the church in Walnut Creek. I wanted to go somewhere where it would be easy to plant a church. I was doing surveys of where uh, churches had, uh, you know, people, 5,000 per- people churches where there were a lot of Christians where it'd be easy to have a church, not in an area where it's anti-church. But God literally told me, I wept and I cried and I heard the voice of the Lord, you will plant the church here and I obeyed it. I tried to say no, he did it to me twice. <laughs> I got a call for a church up in Washington, building everything. And I was like, God, I already knew you said this. It was an easy no because I knew I had this yes. So, so that's the spiritual one. When God tells you, you obey. The second part is, is if scripture says it, it should be really easy. God, how should I date Rachel? How should we navigate in our, in our, in our life? If scripture says to date this way, I date this way. If scripture says I honor somebody this way, I honor this way. So many of you have taken the commands of the Lord that bring joy and given your own commands that bring pain and, 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 and a terrible process in your life. If the Bible says it, do it. Just 40 days. 40 days of actually obeying the Bible completely. See what happens in your life. I'm telling you, your decision-making skills, you're simple. But his commands, oh, they're wise. So, so that's the practice. So, so obey God. That's the first one. So oh, this is really good advice so far, Tyler. Thanks a lot. Um, no, the second thing. <laughs> second thing. Here's, here's, here's a, I have three values that make all my decisions. Second thing is this. What will allow me to build God's kingdom at the highest level? Because my calling is what I'm made for. My career is what I'm paid for. Your calling is what brings most fulfillment in your life. I don't have to be a pastor to build God's kingdom. I don't have to be. I, whatever it is, a business guy, college coach, teacher, whatever it is. I know that my, we, we as a society, reason why there's decision dilemma in LinkedIn, because we put so much pressure on our career to satisfy us. And so we make career decisions instead of calling decisions. And then we allow our career to lead us. We wonder why we have regrets and we're not fulfilled. But if you say, I can actually use this thing that God gave me as a mantle to build his kingdom for his glory. How does God reach cops? He uses a, another Christian cop to build his kingdom in, in a precinct. How does God uh, reach uh, college campuses or, or school campuses? He uses teachers. So you have to say, God, can I leverage this to build your kingdom? And so whenever I make a decision, I'm always processing my calling, not my career. And so when I, we said yes to this, I said goodbye to a job that paid me to a job that didn't pay me because I knew my calling was more important than my career. So start processing your calling of God. What would bring you more glory? And I'll say yes to that. So that's the second thing, building the kingdom. Third one is this, relationships. If I make this decision, does it help my relationship with God or hurt my relationship with God? 
Does it make me closer to God or less closer? Because if the devil can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. So if, 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 if I'm going to be more busy and I have no time for God, maybe just maybe this isn't the right thing. So that's one. So my vertical relation with the Lord is always factored into my decisions. The second decision though is, is my horizontal relationships. God knits people together. And then if I'm going to start making decisions that hurt relationships or pull me out of those relationships, how do you think um, the enemy destroys people? He, it's not the weakest one. It's the isolated one. Come on. Look throughout any, 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 any documentary even. The, the ones that the lions get are not the ones that the weakest. It's the one that gets away from the herd. And so when we planted this church and why we're here is people will move so quick for a career and they won't stay for community. And they move for a career and they wonder why their life isn't fulfilled anymore. It's because they left a community of people that they have in their life. They're like, I'll, I'll leave everybody because this pays more. Wow. Thinking that's what brings riches. No, people bring riches to your life. And so as you make decisions this next season of your life, take just a little bit of pastoral advice that I found from the word of God that I've used in all my decisions. And then when you make those decisions, tell if you had hard seasons the last 20 years, Oh, baby, I've had hard seasons, terrible seasons, breaking seasons. But I never had regret in them because I knew I was in the center of God's will. I knew I was. I knew I was. We got, or actually, we're not, we don't have time. We're over time. But, um, you know, actually, I read a study this week. Uh, let's have a conversation. Okay. I read a study this week <laughs> that, um, uh, <laughs> that only 10% of people like messages 40 minutes or longer, and they won't go to your church. Uh, I read that study this week, and I was like, you haven't been to Mission Church because uh, I preach 50 uh, minutes. And, uh, but supposedly, they say 90% of you hate it. If you hate it, you've been, really, you've been faking it really good for me, okay? Um, <laughs> It's a, it's a dumb stat. Our church isn't a stat church. We're a hungry church. Amen? Okay. Um, so then it goes on to say a few more promises. Reverence of the Lord is pure, lasting forever. The laws of the Lord are true. Each one is fair. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. We'll finish with this. Uh, my last one. So when you lose out on the book, you lose out on his glory. When you lose out on the book, you lose out on his goodness. When you lose out on his book, you lose out on his grace. You lose out on his grace. Um, here's what it says about the word of God. They're more desirable than gold, even the finest gold. They're sweeter than honey. All your instructions, each one is like even honey dripping from the comb. They are a warning to your servant, a great reward for those who obey them. There's a great reward for those who obey him. So, so he's saying it's honey, oh, it's delicious. I love your word, I wanna devour it. So if the Bible says it's a great reward for those who obey them, the Bible shows also that it's a curse for those who disobey them. And this is just, again, the, what scripture shows us, that, that there isn't a land in between. There's not one foot and one foot out. You get kind of blessed and a little blessed. You know, it's either you're blessed or you're cursed. And so he's going on to say, how can I know all the sins lurking in my heart? Cleanse me from these hidden faults. Keep your servant from deliberate sins. Don't let them control me. He's literally asking for grace because he's saying, I want this great reward of obedience, but I don't even know how bad my sin is and I know I'm gonna disobey you. He goes on to say, then I'll be free of guilt and innocent of great sin. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you. What David is requesting in this moment is he is requesting to be rewarded and seen in an impossible way. He's saying, may my words, may my mouth, the way I live may be pleasing to you. That Hebrew word is literally the same word that is used for a sacrifice to make the atonement for sin. And it had to be a perfect, unblemished lamb uh, to, to, to pay the price of sin. And what he's saying is, may my life, the way you see it, may it be perfect and spotless when you see it. This is an impossible request. It's an impossible request to say, can you see me this way? And then can you bless me this way? It should be a very discouraging message if I told you, obey the word and you'll be blessed. And if you mess up tomorrow, you'll be cursed. And that's why David knew something that you need to know today. He finishes it with one little sentence, oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Can I encourage you today? You're gonna fail this week. You're gonna sin this week and you're gonna need something called grace. Grace fills the gaps. The standard of God is perfection. The standard of God is full commitment and your flesh will wane and your flesh will deceive you this week and you will make a decision that is dishonoring to God and dishonoring to people. And at that moment, you deserve death and destruction. At that moment, you deserve cursing. But because we have a redeemer that David is literally proclaiming and prophesying over his life, he's saying, I need grace, God, because I have no idea what sins I'm gonna do and what sins are lurking. And what grace does is it stands in the gap of where you fall short every single day. So you can be seen as pleasing and perfect to your God. And all you have to do is by faith, believe the free gift of grace.
by faith that when you mess up this week, God, my desire was not to live a life of sin or to make that decision, but I, I missed it. But your word shows me by faith, if I receive grace, that that will not determine my steps, that will not determine my birthright. God, would you forgive me? I repent again today. And I say yes to the gospel message that you are my king, you're my savior. Some of you in the house today, you've never ever said yes to Jesus. You've never said yes to salvation. Never, never said yes to repentance. Repentance is a big Christian word. All it is literally means to change your mind and change your heart, which will lead to being changing your lifestyle and changing your birthright. It is literally a changing. It is a 180 turn of your life. You were living for yourself and for the world, and now you're gonna live for Jesus and watch what happens. Could you bow your heads? I wanna give anybody an opportunity to say yes to Jesus today. Yes to heaven, no to hell. Yes to blessing, no to cursing. If you're in the room today and you never said yes to Jesus, you never said yes to salvation, you wanna say yes to salvation this morning. Something in your heart started stirring and started moving. If that's you, with every head bowed and eye closed, you wanna say yes to Jesus. On the count of three, raise your hand and catch my eye. This is, the Bible shows there must be a response. There must be a response to confess your mouth and believe in your heart that you'll be saved. So on the count of three, if that's you, raise your hand. One, two, three. Raise it up, raise it up. I see you, and I see you. Anybody else wanna say, I see you right there in the middle. I see you right there. I see you in the back, my right. I see you at the very back on the right side. Come on now. Come on now, we see you. Second thing I wanna do is, I wanna pray for everybody in the room that God would give you the strength, the stirring, to fall in love with his word like you never fell in love with his word before. Get a 365 journal, read through the Bible. Start in the book of John, uh, the gospel of John, I think is a great place to start. You'll see the beauty of God and read a chapter a day. Read two chapters a day. Just read till your heart burns and you see God speaking to you. So God, I pray right now that this will be a house that never loses the word of God. We will not lose the book. God, because the book, it's you. You're the word, you are the living word. In the beginning was the word, the word was God and with God. You're the reason for life. You're the reason why we breathe. And so God, I pray in this season that there is a church that falls in love with their savior all over again. For the believer that's been following you for 20 plus years, may they fall in love with you all over again. To the new believer, God, I pray they will fall in love with you all over again. Oh, we love you, Jesus. We give you all the glory. And everybody said? Thanks again for listening to the Mission Church Podcast. If you enjoyed it, make sure you subscribe so you can keep up on our weekly sermons. If you're in the Bay Area, we invite you to come join us on Sundays. You can find all the details on our website at missionchurchca.com. Again, thanks so much for listening, and we hope to see you soon.